Welcome back to everybody out there in listener land. This is episode number 43 of the Noggin Notes podcast. It's my uh, it's my second conversation with Dr. Christian Conti, who's a psychologist in the state of Pennsylvania, and he's doing some incredible work with the Pennsylvania prison system, implementing his yield theory. We talk a little bit about that. We also discuss uh, factors of motivation. We talk philosophy. We talk human evolution and spirituality. It's, it's a really uh, cool conversation. I hope you enjoy it. It's pretty long, so I'm going to cut short the intro, and uh, I will tell you that in the beginning when I say, uh, thanks for calling me back, that's because our call dropped initially and we were struggling with uh, with a bunch of technology issues, so I uh, hope you enjoy this. Uh, as always, the podcast is brought to you by Zephyr Wellness. Check out zephyrwellness.org and learn more about what we're doing there uh, to give the audience a little bit of a tease. If you happen to live in northern Nevada, we have good news. Zephyr is expanding, and we're going to be adding another location in Sparks uh, come July 1st. That will be open, and it's very, very cool. We're looking forward to serving the people of Sparks, Nevada, and uh, bringing our services to a little bit broader population as well as we get into some networks with different insurances. Uh, And I will tease that now and save the details for later, but it's a really cool time for us at Zephyr, so check out zephyrwellness.org. If you have any questions about any of this stuff, uh, email us at info at nogginnotes.com or info at zephyrwellness.org. I'm Jake Wiskirchen, and this is a second chat with Dr. Christian Conti on the Noggin Notes podcast. Enjoy episode number 43. Hey, so uh, thanks for calling me back. I appreciate it. Um, for those of you who like skip past the introduction, um, we're talking with Dr. Christian Conti. He's a, a psychologist out of Pennsylvania and a good longtime friend of mine, and a, has been a big influence. Of my well, as I choke on my words, a big influence on my career, and uh, the developer of yield theory. Which, for those of you who've gone to the Zephyr Wellness website, you may have poked around and seen that we embrace the the concepts of yield theory in our practice and in our business. Um, refresh us a little bit about that because we didn't actually talk about that last time. I want to hear about yield theory and what you got going on with it. Well, I'm I'm writing my book on it right now, uh, which I'm excited about. I spent my whole career developing this. As you know, when you're developing a theory, I mean, it takes time, it takes practice, and then it takes reflection and then looking at it and trying to write and revise and revise. So for me, uh, to create to where it is right now, I'm really excited about it because um, my goal is to make my approach pragmatic, understandable, but yet there's still a great depth to it. So yield theory is all about meeting people where they are, expanding their awareness. It's about trying to help people, no matter instead of trying to look at the world from your perspective and how you're experiencing others, it's trying to connect with people in such a deep way that you can actually see the world the way they're seeing the world, or at least to the best of your ability. But what it does is it really approaches others with, you help you approach others with compassion, and then it taps into your creativity to be able to really help expand people's awareness. When will people be able to wrap their uh, hands around your theory? And I should probably define that. If, for, for those of you who are listening who may be clinicians, it's not a theory in so much as a, uh, like a modality to be applied uh, in, ther- in therapy or in a counseling session. What it is is really just a way of looking at the world and looking at people. Um, and, and I think there's a stark difference between the two. Like if you, if you engage in utilizing something like cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, it's, a, it's an intervention strategy, whereas yield theory is 
is just a way of walking through life. And, um, and I, I think that's what sets, sets it apart. But when, when might people be able to, you know, get a, pick up a book or, uh, you know, a workbook or something like that? Well, I, I signed with Sounds True Publishing, and we, it's going to be cool. out in 2019 is the release date should be, I think, summer of 2019. That's awesome. And, and this is going to be for the public or for practitioners? For or public. This is going to be for everyone. This is not just. You know, in my, I have a textbook called Advanced Techniques for Counseling and Psychotherapy, and in that, I at least introduce uh, clinicians to the to the idea of yield theory. But I have really developed it a lot more since. I have a workbook called the Complete Anger Management Workbook, which actually will be out on Amazon soon, um, and, and I talk more about yield theory in there. But this is for everybody. This is for everyday people. This is about how do you help deal with the conflict in your life. If you're going to experience conflict, you know, my tagline is there are two kinds of people in the world, people with issues and dead people. Right, right. So uh, how do you deal with people whenever you're experiencing conflict? And this is for everybody. It doesn't matter. You don't have to have any experience. You don't have to have any background. It's just going to be simply, how do I deal with this? I have people who are angry in my life. I have conflict. How am I supposed to deal with this? And I've tried to pull down everything from, from working with everyday people who are struggling with issues to working in solitary confinement in maximum security prisons um, to work with some of the best athletes in the world. And as you know, I've uh, borrowed your, your yield theory and I've taught it to some of the police officers here in northern Nevada at the police academy. I've, gone, I've had the privilege of teaching a couple of times now, and um, it's it's been pretty eye-opening, I think, because people are used to receiving instruction on how to de-escalate individuals by, you know, validating and whatnot, which is which is all good and, you know, helping them to get to a brief short-term solution. But I think that what yield theory brings is the ability to uh, look past the outward behaviors and into the human being on the inside, which is, is quite radical, especially for um, people who are first responders. They're used to just jumping in, solving the crisis, and then moving on, remaining in their in their cognitive space. Uh, and this invites people to to really meet folks where they are, like you said. And and I think that authenticity that's that's generated gets a lot warmer reception, even in hostile circumstances. And um, I've been I've been pretty pleased to to be able to do that. But this this book that you got coming out in a you know a year or so, I think I could see it being generally applicable to all professions and all people, like you said, uh, from teachers to nurses to you know, obviously, police officers, like we mentioned, um, prison uh, staff, athletes, uh, anybody. And it's it, I think it really not only improves communication and fosters a lot of understanding, but it also improves self-awareness, too. Um, talk, talk a little bit about that. So I, I think fundamental aspect to yield theory is looking to what you're doing and how the role you're playing in communication. So in order to be aware of what you're doing, you have to look into what types of things come up for you. What kind of mm. biases are there? You have to meet yourself where you are. Exactly. Exactly. How am I supposed to know my influence on someone else if I don't know what's going on inside of me? So I talk so much about being aware of your biases, being aware of what keeps you locked in. And once you understand that, it's not that I think we're ever fully aware or awake but I, I do think that we can understand, I think there's something going on with me right now. There's a reason why there's, there's, I'm having a tough time really empathizing with this person. 
And so the more you do that, obviously, the more you keep looking to yourself first and saying, what role am I playing? It does two things. One, it changes the energy of the interaction because you're not solely putting it on the other person. Like, there's mm-hmm. something wrong with you. You're the issue. Instead mm-hmm. of saying, what can I focus on? And then that's the, that's the part two, which is you're the only person you can control anyway, so why not focus on you? You, you touched on a couple of things there, and I, I want to get a little bit deeper in this, uh, maybe move away from the yield theory itself and into concepts of uh, uh, deeper spirituality and humanity. Um, I mean, Naga Notes as a podcast is, you know, we, we embrace the spirituality and we want to help expand people's awareness through, you know, psychological understanding, emotional regulation. And we haven't done a lot of conversations about spirituality because I think it tends to be one of those hot button issues where people instantly equate spirituality with religion and religion has this long checkered history of, you know, abuse and power and control. And it's not always the most benevolent picture to paint. But when you say that um, you want to, you, you can only, you don't ever really believe you're fully enlightened. Um, I, I say the same thing. And, and you and I both come from a, a Jungian, Carl Jung, J-U-N-G, for those of you who are listening, uh, Jungian perspective where the idea is to become as self-aware as possible. But if you ever were to, quote unquote, become fully aware or become fully conscious, you would then have hit what is your true self. That's that inner divinity that uh, most people believe were, you know, we're divine creatures walking the earth. And um, if you were to hit that mark, you would be tantamount to God. And we can't be God because if God is the creator of everything, then you would put yourself on that level and you, you can't because there's only one creator of everything or one spiritual divineness that flows through us all. And, you know, to, to say that I am that is pretty arrogant and I, I don't ever want to be so arrogant as to say I'm fully enlightened and I know all things at all times about everything. Um, but uh, I, I really want to uh, get into that because some of what we discuss, uh, you and I and then uh, clinicians generally, is the authenticity piece of yield theory. And I think being authentic is trying to know as much about you as possible and then be that across all environments. However, in school, sometimes they say to us, don't self-disclose in session. And and then uh, society, of course, tells us that you have to put on a mask or you have to wear a face, you know, in certain environments or you have to be something that you're not or play to your audience or whatever. Uh, just to make things go along. And that and that kind of flies in the face of authenticity. It flies in the face of self-awareness. And really, it flies in the face of the way that that God made you to be or that that, that divine nature uh, should be expressed. If you're if you're masquerading, it's not it's not authentic. Yeah. And I, to me, that's why non-attachment is a fundamental component. So I have the seven fundamental components to yield day. But the reason why it's, it's such a, an important piece is I definitely – have a very strong uh, faith, and faith is a psychological construct. So whether people mm-hmm. believe in something or nothing, everyone has faith. You either believe that you're correct, that there's nothing, or you believe in something, but faith is a psychological construct. You can't escape that. I definitely have a strong faith, um, and if my faith is different than other from other people, the, the, part, the part that I own and I can be authentic with is I really genuinely don't believe I have the answers. Like I think that the, what I believe works and it works for me and it's a path I'm on, but I'm always open to learning or being exposed to something new that I'm, or, or seeing something old in a new way. Mm-hmm. And because I'm open and because I'm not attached, I, I, here's how I can say it, I think in the most simple way. I'm so comfortable with what I believe 
that I am neither trying to convince other people to believe what I believe, and I'm not going to be convinced to believe what other people believe unless it profoundly resonates with me. So to that point, um, how do how do we stay non-attached when we see that people are definitely going a wrong direction? You know, people are definitely, say, in chaos or in strife or they're unhealthy. And, and you want so badly to reach out and, like, almost – you know, matrix style, you know, you, you snap the cord into the back of their head and download information into them that says, hey, this is how you can be at peace. Or this is how you can be happy. Because wouldn't that be like almost an imparting of that belief system? Well, I think when Virgil led Dante and the Divine Comedy through the realms, through hell, through purgatory, through heaven, his goal was as a guide to say, hey, look, if you go here, this is what might happen. If you go there, this is what might happen. His goal wasn't to say you need to believe this or you need to follow this path. And for me, I've always looked at the role of a counselor and really what I believe the role of all of us are as human beings as teacher. And the, and the root of teacher is Tar Sen, which is a guidepost. Mm -hmm. So I'm not here to tell you you're on the wrong path. I'm here to be a sign to say shine some light. And if I can shine some light, if, if that's you're something you're drawn to, then go to it. If this isn't the right time and this isn't the right place, then maybe that's your destiny to be in wherever you are. So I'm not really trying to – I really embrace that. Like I'm here to shine a light and also continue to shine a light on myself. And, but, and then what you take from that is up to you. I think that's really good, and I think all great teachers um, have – have been very non-attached in what they present, right? I mean, even Jesus told his disciples, you know, there's that passage in, in the New Testament that says, go forth and make disciples of, you know, of everyone, and that's called the Great Commission. And, and I think a lot of Christ followers tend to grab that and go, I know I need to go browbeat people into believing what I believe. And, and really, that wasn't at all what Jesus was saying. I mean, he even said to his disciples, you know, if you come to a town where you're not received, dust off your feet and walk on, you know, you, all we got to do is try to present um, you know, light or illumination or options really for people to choose their own paths. But I wanted to come back to something that uh, I think I heard you say earlier about um, you don't believe that you have uh, answers, you know, you don't know, you don't have everything that you need or something like that. And it sounded like that's, that's very Buddhist. Like it's very Buddhist to say um, you have all within you that you need, but I'm not hearing you say that it, I'm hearing you say that you need other people's reflection in order to, to help them draw that out of you and vice versa with others. Well, I mean, something that I probably didn't really uh, talk a lot about in the past that I probably embrace more now, uh, but that I don't, I didn't always live by it, but that I embrace it and probably more vocal about it, but I'm definitely a practicing Zen Buddhist. I mean, that's that's my philosophy. That's my background. Um, there was an interesting time where a, a king he he had in China, the Confucians and the Taoists were vying for, hey, which should be the the superior teaching or whatever in China. So the king said, okay, I want you guys to tell me, uh, you know, what is the ultimate truth and. So the uh, Confucians, they kind of gave an answer, and then the Taoists said, you know what, we can't say, well, there's nothing we can say about it. So he, the king said, all right, I'll tell you what we're going to do, we're going to have a little contest. And he took them down to this uh, room that he had in the bottom of the castle, and he put, he said, I'm going to have you paint something that really reflects uh, the ultimate truth. So the Confucian, and what he did is he pulled a giant uh, curtain in between the two sides of the room, 
So day in, day out, uh, the Confucians, they had ordered this beautiful paint and all these brushes and things like that. And day in, day out, they worked diligently on this masterpiece of a painting. The Taoists, they didn't even order any paints. They ordered these cloths. So they were rubbing the wall constantly with these soft cloths or whatever. And they were they didn't want to whine and they were laughing and kind of just enjoying the day. And they were, you know, having fun all the time. But they weren't really working hard. And the people... He was kind of confused at what was going on. So finally, when the time came to really understand the truth, the king came down and he looked at the Confucian side first, and there was a beautiful painting. I mean, it was absolutely gorgeous of the kingdom, the castle, the king himself on his horse, uh, river, and all that stuff. So he walked over to the Taoist side, and he looked, and there was literally nothing on the wall. He was like, you didn't even take this seriously. Like, this is messed up. Like, I can't believe it. So he walks back over to the Confucian side. He sees that painting again. He's ready to declare them the winner. And when he does, one of the old Dallas monks got hiccups and walks over and he pulls back the curtain. And when the king turns and faces the wall of the Dallas, he sees this wall that was not only, it was so shiny that it not only reflected the Confucius painting, but in on the Dallas side, the, the king on the horse almost looked like the horse was moving. The water in the river looked like it was jumping because the reflection was so clear and so beautiful. And it was said in that moment that the king adapted the Taoist perspective of understanding that the reflection was the key. So for hmm. me, it's about being a reflection for people to make myself as clear as possible so that I can reflect what other people are. That's beautiful. I really appreciate that story. That's really beautiful. What you don't know is that just last week I recorded a a couple of podcasts that um, I don't know when they're going to air. I'm just talking. I don't know if it's going to come on before or after this one, but we recorded it with uh, one of my employees, Dave Reed, who practices attachment theory in his uh, clinical uh, presentation. And so what came up in that conversation was the concept of dependence and how dependence in our culture has been poo-pooed as something bad. And, you know, you don't want to be dependent, you know, this independent uh, spirit and whatnot. And he says actually quite the opposite in, in attachment, we need healthy attachments. We need to depend on people. And so the idea of hitting the age of 18, for example, the age of majority in the United States, and then striking off from one's parents, you know, is the, uh, representation of independence. You're no longer dependent upon your parents who raised you, but um, quite the inverse is true is what Dave was submitting through this attachment theory perspective. And um, he says, you're actually dependent upon them in different ways. They become a coach or a mentor or whatnot, uh, you know, a friend maybe as they're, they're aligned with you in different ways. So attachment theory says that we absolutely do need each other and that um, biologically, anthropologically, spiritually, um, we, we absolutely must connect because that's where the reflection comes from in order to grow through that. I love, um, I love what you were saying that, that Dave was talking about, and I definitely agree with that. I think people often, when they first encounter the concept of non-attachment in Zen philosophy, the idea is that they think we, we don't need anybody and just go, and especially with the concept of the master, right, up on the mountainside. Yeah. Um, but that is not really what non-attachment is about. Non-attachment is about not being attached to your ideas so and, and it's being open constantly. Um, there's a saying in the Tao Te Ching that Lao Tzu says, which is a good traveler has no fixed plans and is not intent upon arriving. 
And that doesn't mean that he doesn't have any plans. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean it doesn't mean anybody. It just means that he doesn't have fixed plans and he recognizes he's already there. But one of the things that's very true about what I love, what Dave talks about, um, is in terms of attachment. A few years back, you and I talked about this before. I don't think we did it on the podcast, though. Um, the, an anthropologist had discovered what he found to be some really striking differences in Neanderthal brains and the brains of Homo sapiens. Right, yeah. I teach this, actually. Go on, yeah. Well, so the Neanderthal brains were uh, are larger brains, obviously. They were bigger physiologically. Physically, they were bigger than Homo sapiens. But they lived on mountaintops. They lived isolated. So they had a larger portion of their brain devoted to eyesight and coordination, smaller region devoted to social interactions. So the idea, his, philosophy, his, his hypothesis is that the Neanderthals may very well have died out because they believed that they could do it on their own and they didn't really need each other, whereas Homo sapiens, we realized the power of the group and that we needed each other. So Correct. definitely strongly agree with that idea in attachment stuff um, for sure as far as that piece of it. If we're talking in terms of fixed plans too, I really like that you brought that up because um, Tao Te Ching is something I've really dove into and I've read it a couple of times now because it's really easy just to, to leaf through. And uh, if you're listening and you've never heard of that book, it's uh, T-A-O, new word, T-E, new word, C-H-I-N-G. So it, it sounds to the uh, English speaker like Tao Te Ching, but uh, it's Tao Te Ching. And the, and the Stephen Mitchell translation, I think, is probably the, the best of the ones that are out there. Um, so if you want to pick that up, it's, it's really good. It's very, very insightful, a lot of wisdom. But um, the idea of no fixed plans, I think, speaks to uh, just being at peace overall as well. So um, when I teach emotional functioning, for example, I teach that from uh, from Carol Izzard's uh, adaptive perspective, the the emotion of sadness tells us that our expectations were not met. So sadness has a large range, and along that range might be frustration, which bleeds into anger. And so if people are struggling with anger, what I invite them to do is analyze what's what's behind that. Maybe it's a disappointment of some sort that they're not authentically feeling. And then uh, something you taught me, which is align your expectations with reality. And that doesn't mean lower your standards. It just means acknowledge reality for where it is and align your expectations. So if we have an expectation for, say, a journey that's a fixed plan, and then uh, a detour pops up or construction on the road, and we have to take a a different route, um, what we do is we want to be very fluid with those plans, lest we become frustrated, lest we become consumed by our emotions, and our emotions rule us, and then we're not having fun anymore. So I think the idea is, Mm -hmm. you know, have the goal in sight. We don't want to just become, you know, uh, hippies and throw caution to the wind and say, you know, whatever happens, happens, and I don't have to plan for the future. That's not what non-attachment is. Non-attachment is mindful planning. It's mindful reflection without being stuck either in, you know, the future or the past and uh, being very present. And so with that all said, uh, you and I had a conversation some weeks ago about, the idea of motivation, because I know you do that, that podcast tackling life with uh, Ray Lewis. And um, a lot of what comes up with you guys is the idea of using motivation from people who are, you know, telling you no, or saying you can't do it, or just naysayers or haters in general. And I personally have taken that into the gym uh, historically, because I got I got picked on, I got teased, I got bullied a lot. And I think that it, it comes out in such a way where I can channel that into weightlifting or working out or training in an effort to, you know, quote unquote, prove myself. But now as I've, I've embraced this non-attachment philosophy, and I've invited more peace into my life, 
I find myself having having struggles motivating because I was used to the external motivation. And now, how does one who embraces the spirit of non-attachment motivate internally to do great yeah. things? That's an, I think it's such a great question and it's something for so many people. I think it fits so many people. I love the way Ray Lewis talks about how, you know, in his own personal journey, he used that motivation to become great when people hated, you know, said negative things to him. He turned that into something positive. Michael Jordan in his great Hall of Fame, his legendary Hall of Fame speech talked about how he, he cited everyone who ever doubted him and that drove him. For mm-hmm. me, motivation comes differently. It comes from waking up every morning and realizing, like, first and foremost, being grateful that I'm alive and I get to be here. And then having this almost sense of, um, I almost feel a a rush to say like, this is my chance in life to leave a legacy. And something my dad told me many years ago, really, really impacted me. Like I was a young kid and I remember him telling me about Socrates, Aristotle, uh, Plato and well, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. And I, and as he did, and there wasn't, and then he started to tell me about people from the Middle Ages, and I said, "Why were so? Why did so much time go by where we don't really have names that stood out? Mm-hmm. So few names stood out, and, I, and of course, I've learned a lot about philosophy. It's not like there was this dead period or anything like that. Right, right. Just as a kid, when I heard that, I said, "I don't ever want to be forgotten. Like I want to leave a legacy that's going to be. I want to be one of those people, and that's the fire that drives me. So I can be not attached to." My ideas, like I constantly throw out, hey, this is something I'll call you. I'll, you know, you're one of my super close friends. So if I have an idea and I throw it out to you and you say, you know, that's not a good idea, I mm-hmm. still have the fire to want to pursue an idea. But if, if uh, I'm not attached, if, if you say, hey, that doesn't make sense, then I'm going to be open and say, okay, let me let that go. But I still have the fire to say I want to leave a legacy. I want right. to leave something behind. And that drives me every day of my life, like. My exercise that I do is every morning when I wake up and I'm, I, I, I wake up in gratitude, but then I, I meditate. And then one of the things that I do is I use Twitter as something that is, this is crazy. Last couple of years has been really interesting, but I haven't missed a day in the last couple of years. What I do is after I meditate, I imagine that I'm standing in front of the entire world. And I say, if I was in front of the entire world as an audience, what would I want to say that would bring any kind of consciousness or light to the world mm-hmm. so it sets my uh my drive my motivation to say if i'm going to be every morning i'm going to stand in front of the entire world and say something so what am i going to say so i think there are ways to be non-attached but to be internally motivated to drive to drive yourself to leave a legacy so one of the things i saw you doing recently was you're you're boxing around this heavy bag it looked like on uh on somewhere i don't know instagram or something and uh, <laughs> but you you and I are a few years apart, and I'm hitting the age now where I'm like I'm burdened by oh it's not burdened it's an honor I shouldn't say that but uh, yeah but I've got these obligations in my life like uh, you know work and and uh, and uh, politics and you know uh, children and home and you know all this stuff and and I'm like man I miss the days where I could just go spend two two hours in the gym you know five days a week. <laughs> And, you know, I could kind of feel my body tightening up and breaking down. And I just like, man, I'd, I'd love to go work out again. But I missed the, the motivation because my motivation was being really good on the 
amateur sporting field, um, you know, different sports, or whatever. And I see you, you know, jumping around boxing, you've lost all this weight. You look really good. And I'm like, well, geez, if Christian can do it, you know, then why can't I do it? And I think it's a matter of priorities, but I'm, I'm curious, how do you, how do you elevate yourself to have that much energy and that much purpose? Like we're, we're not competing anymore, right? We're not on the sporting field anymore. Um, we're not, we're not measuring ourselves against other human beings. So where does that come from to go put that much time and energy into something that is beneficial really just for you? Um, maybe your family, you know, sees it and is like, Hey, I want to be healthy also, but really it's, it's a very narrow, um, platform. It's not standing in front of, uh, hundreds or thousands of people. It's just for you. Yeah. So I think I'm going to, I'm going to just answer you on the spur of the moment. So I, I'm not going to plan this at all. This is, so I don't even know if I want to disclose all this, but I'm going to <laughs> this life. So one thing. And I this is what we do on the Noggin Notes podcast. It's real life. <laughs> yes, this is real life because I'm not even sure how much I was prepared to share of this. But um, what, on, the, on the most basic level that I would be prepared to share is I do it because it's a great stress relief. I find if I don't work out, I find that my body's just overwhelmed with stress. I have a lot going on. So if I don't physically work out, um, I tend to feel more anxiety. But I, I think the part that I. I think I should just share. It'll be fun. Uh, when I was young, I was picked on. I was a skinny kid, and I um, I was I was picked on in, in middle school, and I hated it. I was really much smaller than than my peers. I had skipped a, a grade of school, so um, I was I was uh, you know a little younger mm. and smaller than my peers, and I, it impacted me so much that I got into martial arts and I learned how to defend myself. And I think probably something deep down inside of me is even though my life is completely led by peace and compassion is I always want to be able to never, I never want to feel that way again. I want yeah. to be able to feel like I can take care of myself. I like the fact that I can walk through maximum security prisons and I don't have a false sense of security. I'm like, Oh, I can do whatever, but I, I know that I can handle myself. Mm-hmm. And, and I also feel like part of that is I think a lot of the people that I work with, they respect that on the surface level so that I can even have a chance to connect with them and do some of the other things. So when I walk in, and so for instance, in those prisons, and I walk in and guys are like, all right, this guy, like, you know, he's going to stand his ground, then it's, it almost allows me to then open the door to the conversation that I want to have, which is, let's be about compassion. So, yeah, yeah, I think that part about being picked on when I was a kid probably has stuck with me longer than I, than I realized. Well, you're, you're, you're stirring something in me now too. Cause I'm thinking about all this stuff that I'm doing with my, for those of you who don't know on the, on the listening end, um, I, I'm currently serving as the president of my licensing board in the state of Nevada, uh, that licenses counselors and therapists in our state. And it's been a mess for 30 years. I mean, it's, it's been really, really bad. And, and I've spent the last, um, you know, eight months really specifically, but about the last 20 months working pretty hard with our entire board team to, turn some of that stuff around and it's been awful quite, quite honestly. But, uh, but I think a, a, a strong drive to do that kind of thing when it would be so much easier just to retreat and, you know, say, you know what, I'd rather spend time with my kids and my family. And you know, I think that the, the internal drive is such that um, I have, I don't want injustice to befall innocent people anymore. Cause similar to your story, I mean, middle school was horrible uh, for me. And, uh, and it really wasn't just middle school. It was elementary through high school. And then it left me a kind of a, a broken shell in college where I didn't know how to communicate socially with anybody. Um, but I think that that internal drive now still is with me where 
like, man, I don't have the time to go in the, in the weight room anymore, you know, and do crazy workout routines. But I, what I do have is a lot of time to dive into, you know, seminal documents, statutes, codes, uh, you know, rework policies, that kind of thing, and uh, really network into the community so that these people who are trying to get licensed and are encountering these obstacles and walls that have been up for ages and ages and ages and have never been dusted off, uh, what we're seeing in Nevada, because we're 51st in mental health care provision and, you know, dead last in everything that matters, um, it it sucks for somebody who's who's living here and has lived here his whole life and his family's you know, fourth, fifth generation on one side. And um, I don't want to see that kind of pain anymore. I don't want to see that kind of frustration. People, you know, completing graduate degree programs and want to become counselors. And then they're just frustrated by an archaic, outdated system. Like, I think I think that's a very similar, deep internal drive that says, never again will this happen to, you know, innocent bystanders, you know. And so similarly, I think I think I see it as a, you know, the system is almost doing the bullying. And I'm like, Oh, by God, I am going to change that come hell or high water. <laughs> and, uh, and if I can, then great. But you know, I'm not trying to change the world or anything. It's just, you know, I'm trying to just light up my little area. And, um, you know, if I'm going to live under it for the next 20 or 30 years as a, as a career professional in this field, um, I might as well make it good for myself too. So there's a little bit of self enlightenment, I think that goes along with that. I mean, it's not totally virtuous, but, uh, you know, cause I, I reap some benefit. But, you know, I mean, I think we do naturally, like we're always going to, well, the one we're doing, whatever we do, we're going to reap some benefit if we're working hard, I think so. But, uh, yeah, it is. When, you, when you're internally motivated, when you have that drive and fire, it's about knowing what legacy do you want to leave. Um, you know from studying psychology and counseling that existentialism was this uh, philosophy that was predicated on what a lot of people thought was this really pessimistic outlook like we're going to die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, meaning and we gotta make meaning. But I think it's really exciting because um if you remember maybe one of the first lessons on that uh in that class that I taught, I would draw this box that Rollo May taught, which he was a Rollo May was an existential philosopher and he, and he said if you look at a a, a canvas, a blank canvas Mm-hmm. And you say, you know, first, if you say to someone, hey, just draw something or, or give me something artistic, they say, well, what do you want? Is it on what medium do you want? What this, mm-hmm. what that? But the moment you give them a canvas that is limited and it's finite, there's still an infinite amount of space within that canvas. And so then to create, uh, exactly. yeah, to create. And so once you realize, listen, this life is limited. Instead of saying, okay, now I have to think it's negative and all know it's limited, I say, wait a minute, this is exciting. This is my chance to leave a mark. So for me, that's just the driving thing. But uh, I do think, I do believe body, mind, and spirit. I think we need to take care of all three. Um, I think every day, I mean, that's something that I definitely dedicate my life to. My wife and daughter, we, we definitely keep in the foreground every day is body, mind, spirit, something we're teaching our daughter to do every, every day. Um, so we're, we're three-part beings, and I believe we need to take care of those. And if we don't, what happens is we start to feel it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Psychological distress can uh, manifest in physiological ways and uh, spiritual distress can manifest in psychological ways. And it, it, I think they all interplay for sure. Um, as we wrap up, because I want to respect your time, too, and we all have you know busy lives and we got to move on. But um, what, what's one thing? <laughs> what's one thing you're taking away from this? <laughs> or maybe I should rephrase that and say, what's one thing you want to leave with the audience um, to, to conclude? I always enjoy talking to you, so I, I take away the good energy and the, and the 
being able to um, just be able to communicate like this is awesome. It's a blessing, and I'm, I'm hopeful that people are able to that this is able to resonate with others. Um, I think what I hope always that people take away is a drive to want to learn as much as they can about themselves, and instead of putting the emphasis on others, like oh, when communication goes awry, when things aren't going well, what's this person, this person. Ask yourself what you could do differently. I'm not saying take all the blame by any means. I'm not saying take all the responsibility, but just take the responsibility for your part because that's the only part you can change. And I think if we all did that, obviously, I think that would obviously make a big difference in the world. Yeah, for sure. Well, if you want to uh, reach out to uh, Dr. Conti, you can uh, visit his website, drchristianconti.com, or check out his YouTube channel. You're still doing the YouTube videos, like, what, weekly? Like weekly, I'm doing I'm doing for 2018, dedicated one new video uh, for this this year, and it is YouTube.com slash Dr. Christian Conti. Um, yeah, you so, got yeah, that's stuff. A, I'm excited about that. Yeah, yeah. So check that out. You know, Facebook, uh, Instagram. He's all over the place. Twitter, obviously, we mentioned. And um, if you want to contact us, uh, we obviously love your listener mail. So uh, info at nogginnotes.com or info at zephyrwellness.org and We'll take some of those questions and read them on air. And thanks for tuning in. Um, thanks for joining me. It's it's been a while. It's been a couple of weeks since we've even talked. So I appreciate your time. Well, it's always it's always a pleasure talking to you. All right, brother. Take it easy, and uh, we'll see you back next week on the Noggin Notes podcast for Dr. Christian Conti. I'm Jake Wiskirchen. Bye.